Good evening. On this week's programme, the Crimean War. We had a single all-powerful leader who potentially misjudged a what was perceived to be a weaker neighbour and the resolve of Western powers to help defend that weaker neighbour. We look back at the 19th century conflict and its effect on Irish society and explore parallels with what's happening today. Also, the sinking of the HMS Wasp. The legend that grew up around the wreck of the Wasp was that the islanders on Tory Island had turned a cursing stone and invoked a curse on the ship. Investigating the mysterious tragedy that befell a ship off the northwest coast of Donegal in 1884. Plus, Maura Comerford. I was one of a commission investigating what the Black and Tans had done in the way of burning houses and making first reports of damage. I'll be joined by Hilary Dully to talk about the life, the work and the recently published memoir of the Irish Republican. The quality of her writing brought you right back into the period and you almost felt like you were there. During the Crimean War in the 1850s, Britain, France and Russia fought savage battles on the territory of modern-day Ukraine. It's a conflict that has parallels with the 2014 annexation of Crimea and, of course, the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. Then, as now, an aggressive Russia sought to expand its territory. To talk about this, I'm joined by Dr Paul Huddy, Committee Member of the Irish Association of Professional Historians and Coordinator of the International Network for Crimean War Studies. He's also the author of the 2015 book, The Crimean War and Irish Society. Um, Begin, Paul, if you would, by giving us an overview of the conflict. How did it get started? More to the point, why did it get started? Well, it started somewhat over a trivial aspect and a very local aspect. It was a conflict between the Orthodox clerics and the Catholic clerics in Jerusalem, of all places, and the Russian emperor at the time, Nicholas I, or Nicholas I, he decided that he needed to keep the influence over the Ottoman or the Turkish sultan in that respect. He wanted to make sure that he was the protector of all kind of Christian sites in the Ottoman Empire and give it all to the Orthodox Church. So he weighed in, said the Orthodox clergy should have the keys to the holy site. They should be the ones that maintain those holy places like where Jesus was born, where Jesus was killed, so on and so forth. And of course, we have a new emperor on the throne of France, Napoleon III, who thinks the Catholics should have it. So we have a small dispute in the Holy Lands, evolves into a major global war. They went to war. war over a bunch of keys. That was the issue and that was what they started with. But really what we have at play here is dominance on the big political world stage, where Russia wants to dominate Turkey and this is an in to do so. It was the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire at that stage, already beginning to, to wane and to fade? It was very much seen so by the Russian Empire and he had been spending the last 10 years going around Europe, even visiting Queen Victoria in the 1840s, saying this is the sick man in Europe. He actually coined the phrase and said, we need to do something about this. It's definitely going to fall apart, I swear, and we need to be ready. Now, what we have is the Crimean War is the turning point in that and it gives it a bit of a boost that keeps it going until the First World War. 
Now, some people argue that the Crimean War is something of a misnomer because you've already used the term global war. How was it a global war? Absolutely. And, you know, there are many Crimean scholars who would now today try and push the term of the Russian War or the Great Russian War. Unfortunately, no one will know what they're talking about if we don't use the Crimean War. So, yes, absolutely a global war. And this is an idea that has been really posited by kind of imperial or naval historians like Andrew Lambert in London and other Canadian scholars in their recent scholarship over the last, say, 20 years. And it because Russia is so big. If you want to attack it from all sides, you have to go to the other side of the world. So the British and the French navies deployed themselves in the Crimea. They deployed themselves in the Black Sea, the White Sea, which is a small sea up behind Finland, and right over in the North Pacific, attacking places like Vladivostok. Now, it was also, I suppose, in many ways, the first modern war when it comes to things like tactics, weaponry and strategy. What kind of new modes of warfare emerged from Crimea? Well, the big thing that scholars would like to say in terms of how we see this as a precursor or World War Zero is a term that has now started to be used, is we see heavy bombardment, say, around Sevastopol. We see trenches being dug in. We see the use of telegraphy. We see the use of steam trains and steam Steam shipping is a huge thing. The reason that the Allies were able to fight such a big campaign far away was because Britain had the biggest shipping fleet in the world and Ireland was a part of that, of course. But we also see massive inefficiencies. I mean, the performance of, I don't know about the Russian generals, but certainly the performance of the British generals was absolutely lamentable. Absolutely. We have 40 years of peace, we have to remember, and Britain had not innovated its armed forces in that time. We actually had a divided British military establishment. So you had a minister for war and a minister at war. So one dealt with the army or the military during peacetime and the other dealt with it during wartime. You had you didn't have a centralised ministry of defence. You had horse guards, which looked after certain things like the line infantry, and you had the board of ordnance, which looked after the engineers and the artillery. Now, it was also a modern war in the sense that it was a media war to a considerable extent. You had photography for the, the first time. You had uh, Fenton, for example, the, the, the photographer who played at footsie to some extent with with his subject matter. Um, it wasn't photoshopping, but it was the 1850s version of photoshopping. But, uh, you know, I mean, you're obviously uh, somebody who's very interested in the Crimea more from an Irish point of view. From an Irish point of view, the reporting of the war is very important, isn't it? Absolutely. We The great thing about this period for me and scholars of the period is that we at, this is the time when the paper tax is dropped and then we see a boom in the publication of newspapers, bigger newspapers, more newspapers at local and national levels. So it provides a great wealth of sources for people to study the period and it provided a huge outlet for consumption of the war. So people, regardless of whether you were in Ballygo backwards or you were in the metropolitan places like Dublin, Edinburgh or London or Paris, you could really know what was going on. And local papers would be printing letters from soldiers sent home and published by the families. They would be reporting on people from the locality who had served, died, their experiences. And, you know, people really could learn from that. So they would know in Dublin, you know, they would be getting reports of what was happening with Scottish regiments or Scottish soldiers. And this would be happening vice versa. So we have so much media access at this time and reporting and the telegraph is a huge thing so you can get a notice soon after maybe the day after a battle has taken place that it has taken place you're not waiting weeks or months to learn about it you will have to wait for maybe a week for the full report to come back but you do know that something has happened
happened. And it did lead to great anxiety at times. So the first battle, the Battle of Alma in September 1854, once the telegraph came to notify people in Dublin that this happened, people were hanging out of the newspaper offices waiting for the full report to come. And the the big beasts, the Times, the London Daily News, for example, I mean, prior to Crimea, they would have been relying in the main on serving officers to send them dispatches. They would, you know, almost employ them as stringers, basically. That changes because the Times send out, you know, the man from Tala, uh, William Russell, and uh, the London Daily News have Edward Godkin, another another Irishman, both of them reporting uh, centrally and very importantly on the on the war. Absolutely. Like, these guys provide uh, a great complement to, to this more traditional thing of the letters coming back. And we didn't have any censorship at the time. This is the big difference between this and the First or Second World Wars, where what came back was immediately published and the government couldn't stop it. So, yes, you have the likes of Russell who are employed and specifically sent out there and they live with the soldiers. They can see firsthand what is happening and they are talking to them firsthand and getting their experiences. And again, it's it's no holds barred. Russell didn't pull his punches when he reported on what was going wrong in the Crimea as well as what was actually happening or going right. What did Irish people think of the of the war with Russia? Did, did they take much notice of it? There was huge interest in the war, as in Britain. France was a bit different case study there was a bit kind of lukewarm reception to that but Ireland and Britain went mad for it everyone wanted to know as much as they could as quickly as they could newspapers were churning out story after story anything kind of related to the east about Ottoman Empire about Russia about Poland or about the war itself or individuals involved in it would be published by kind of 1854 into 1855 newspapers in Ireland were giving over about 50% of their coverage to something related to the war. You see dips in that, you see it waning near as the, the siege goes on in 1855 uh, and then there's a flurry again at the end once Sevastopol falls but it's a lot of, of interest and again that comes back to it being 40 years since Napoleon Bonaparte was defeated and then there's a lot of perceptions about that like liberals for example would see the war against Russia as a defence of Western European civilization or democracy. Conservatives saw it as preserving the status quo. Catholics were interested in it because Tsar Nicholas I was no friend of the Catholic Church. He was known as the non-flogger of Minsk. Irish Protestants were, weren't interested in him either because he had banned the sale of the Bible and he expelled Protestant missionaries from Poland. And so an equal Eastern. opportunities offender. Absolutely, a guy that everyone could hate. <laughs> But obviously the the Irish interest must have been stimulated by the fact that 19th century British army, uh, there was a huge number of of Irish soldiers. And and that number in the regular army is then augmented because you have militia involvement. Absolutely. As we said, that that interest that we see in the paper or just generally in the public sphere, driven by those letters coming back from Irish soldiers in the army. So, I mean, numbers vary because at this time, it's not until the 1860s that the British really pay attention to who's in the army, who's coming into the army and actually have proper recruitment intakes and surveys. But we we estimate this about 30 to 40%. Sources I came across in my studies were suggesting 40 Earlier reports, people were saying 30%. But yes, the militia is the principal recruitment tool during this time. They re-establish the militia in 1853, 
initially in response to fears that France is going to invade, and then it's actually completely reorientated towards Russia. But 10,000 Irishmen transfer from this reserve force, this militia, into the regulars. So what you have throughout the wartime is that regular recruitment sergeants will, will turn up to a county barrack somewhere, maybe Clonmel, Westport, wherever it is. The local county militias there doing their 28 days service in the summertime, and they'll say, tell them wonderful stories about the glories of war out in Russia, get your medals, come back with, I don't know, all the treasures of the, of the foreign lands. And fellas will take the king's shilling there again and transfer into the regulars. And even the navy was just the same. Was there opposition to the war? There wasn't that much, and this is the very interesting thing. So you go, you go 40 years down the line to the Boer War. I mean, that was a very, very divisive mm. uh, war where it, w- it was pitching Protestants against Catholics, Nationalists against Unionists. But this time, we have, we have no O'Connell. We have no Parnell. We're in this lull in the political sphere where it's a very generic time in Westminster, for example, where people are... are MPs are there fighting over or discussing or debating over local issues and issues of domestic importance. And again, because Tsar Nicholas I is someone that everyone has a bone to pick with, everyone's on the back of this war. The only ones in Ireland who actually oppose it, as in Britain, are the Quakers. The Society of Friends oppose all wars and they actively send out petitions into the public sphere, in the press, and actively try and convince people not to support the war. What legacy did the war leave in Ireland? Well, in terms of material legacy, we have over 70 war memorials dotted all over the country. I have found more memorials in 22 out of the 32 counties, and I'm sure there's a few more there or a few we've lost over the years. 33 um, Russian trophy cannon were brought back to Ireland. There were actually 2,000 taken by the Allies, uh, and Britain got about 1,200. We got a 33, that's what we asked for, and you can find them in public spaces all over the Ireland, be it Dunleary Harbour, be it formerly on Air Square but now outside the county offices in Galway or in Cove Harbour. It doesn't matter where you go, you'll find them somewhere and Church of Ireland churches have an awful lot of them. Plaques up on the walls, very beautiful sculptures memorialising uh, deceased officers killed in action. Who won the war? What was the outcome? Well, that is a debated thing. Um <laughs> Obviously, many will say that the Allies won the war, you know, especially the French. Um, the Sebastopol was taken, but it was only taken after the Russians withdrew from it. So you had a major assault upon the fortress of Sebastopol on the 9th, 8th and 9th of September 1855. Two major bastions, big fortifications on the walls were attacked by the British and the French simultaneously. That's the Redan and the Malakov. The Malakov was taken by the French. The Redan was not taken by the British. But because the Malakov was taken, the city, south side of the city, could not be held and the Russians withdrew that night. So we get in, but they hold the north side. So it becomes a divided city. And then eventually the economic effects of the blockade kick in and Russia has to sue for peace. Sanctions. Sanctions. (laughs) Um, Now, there have been a lot of commentators or commentary in the media comparing um, Mr. Mr. Putin to Tsar Nicholas I, as you've already described in somebody that everyone could hate. How historically accurate is that? Can you see parallels between the Crimean War of the 19th century and the current conflict in Ukraine? I mean, it's been said about, about Putin that he wants to bring 
Russia back to the 1980s, but realistically, he wants to bring Russia back to the 1880s, doesn't he? Absolutely. I mean, I'm no expert on, on Russian history or Russian culture, and I'm a Crimean or a scholar, but one cannot help but see parallels. I mean, as you say, I mean, there are parallels between what Russia is now or what it is presenting itself as and what it was then. We had a single all-powerful leader who potentially misjudged a what was perceived to be a weaker neighbour and the resolve of Western powers to help defend that weaker neighbour. We have a, Ru- a Russia that is trying to maintain or increase the internal influence over that weaker neighbour and to dominate that weaker neighbour. In 2014, as you mentioned earlier on, when this all kicked off, Britain had a coalition, a coalition for the first time pretty much since the um, Crimean War, with the exception of those unitary great you know, Second World War governments and things like that. Uh, and, and, and again, it goes down to micro things like this idea of logistics. We're hearing that an awful lot in the media now. I mean, trying to get supplies in 1854, 55, 56 from Moscow, St. Petersburg, even from Warsaw down to the Crimean Peninsula was nigh impossible, especially in the winter and the autumn months. They were mud roads. Uh, And that's why the British had to build their own railway. And the Russians really struggled to get their, their supplies there in a similar way that they seem to be doing now. And then we mentioned sanctions there. As I said, this was a global war in 1854 to 56 because the British and the French deployed their navies at the most vital ports that the Russian Empire had and it stopped the flow of trade. The Russians couldn't trade with anyone or the Brits and the French would seize the ships and they would sell it themselves. So eventually, and this is what's been argued by the likes of Andrew Lambert, it was an economic war and it was won by the navy. And Tsar Nicholas died in 1855. That may or may not be a parallel. Indeed. Well, we'll see about that. But absolutely, that was the reason why the war could come to an end. He would not have ended it. He had gone into that war determined to win it and he would have dug his heels in. Now, he did die in 1855 and his son was able to sue for peace once he had made his own little victory, as it were, within the Crimean sphere and... It wasn't his war. He didn't start it, but he could He could finish it. Whether we see a similar scenario play out now, that remains to be seen. So that becomes what they now call the off-ramp. My guest is Dr Paul Huddy, author of the book published in 2015, The Crimean War and Irish Society. Paul, thank you uh, for joining us to illuminate some of those parallels between the Crimean War and the current conflict in Ukraine. After the break, a mystery veiled in darkness. We look back at the sinking of the HMS Wasp off Tory Island in 1884 and investigate, was the ship the victim of a curse? Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. On the 22nd of September 1884, a banterer-class gunboat of the British Royal Navy was wrecked off the coast of Tory Island, County Donegal. A local legend developed around this sinking based on the idea that the ship, the HMS Wasp, was en route to evict Tory Island residents. The legend suggests that this sinking was no accident, but rather the product of a curse placed by Tory Islanders on the men coming to remove them from their homes. The historical events surrounding this episode form the basis of a new novel called The Cursing Stone, by Ballyshannon-based writer Tom Sigavus. Our reporter, Mark McManaman, spoke to Tom and found out more. 
On its final voyage, the HMS Wasp was sailing from Westport to Moville, County Donegal. There were 56 crewmen aboard. Her mission was to assist the sheriff and deputies in forcibly evacuating Inishtrahal Island, north of Malin Head. I've been writing one way or another all my life, but since I retired, I've been taking an interest in crime fiction and historical fiction, and specifically, I became fascinated with the story of the shipwreck of HMS Wasp. That was a British gunboat that ran onto the rocks near Torrey Island back in 1884. It was a terrible disaster. Uh, Fifty men were killed, and the uh, ship was on its way to do evictions. So the whole context of the thing became a cause celebre. The Donegal of the 1880s was much like the rest of the west of Ireland, a victim of evictions. The fear of being forcibly removed from one's own home and community was particularly acute amongst the island people on Tory. Tory Island is a small island. It's only three miles wide and about... uh, half a mile long. It's off the north coast of Donegal. And it had, at that time, back in 1884, it had about 200 people living on it. It had had more, but the island had been bought and sold by various English businessmen. And some years before, one of the owners of the island had evicted 100 people, insisted that they move onto the mainland because he didn't think the island could support them. The upset that Tom is talking about caused islanders to use the island's cursing stones, one of the most enigmatic artefacts from ancient Ireland. The legend that grew up around the wreck of the wasp was that the islanders on Tory Island had turned a cursing stone and invoked a curse on the ship, and uh, that story has been elaborated by the brave storytellers of Tory Island for years and years. Cursing stones were surprisingly common in Ireland and could be found on many islands as well as on the mainland. Tom has seen a few which still exist today. The cursing stones that remain in Ireland that I've personally seen are round, large round discs of stone with indentations in them and in those indentations are smaller stones, usually 10 or 12 in a circle, and they can be used two ways. They can be used as wishing stones to ask for positive outcomes, and if you do that, you turn all the stones that sit on the cursing stone to the right. If, however, your intentions are darker and more malevolent, you can decide what kind of curse you want to invoke, who you want to invoke it on, and turn all the stones to the left. The actual cursing stone on Tory today is gone, but its foundation stone still remains. We don't have the cursing stone from Tory Island anymore. The island priest threw it into the sea. He got rid of it after the ship sank because he was infuriated that the islanders would have done such a thing. But the cursing stone on Tory sat on a, a large foundation stone about the size of a small car or a big coffin, and that's still in place. According to Tom, there may be a less supernatural reason for the sinking of the HMS Wasp. On the Wasp, in the middle of its journey, there was a storm, and the Wasp was under sail that night. Those ships could either run under steam or sail, and because they were running low on coal, they had the sails unfurled, and they were running ahead of a big storm. 
they ran so close to the Tory Island cliffs that they got wedged between two sea stacks and the ship was caught and twisted and battered in the waves and in 15 or 20 minutes it broke apart. The water, when you go to Tory Island today, you can see that the water still churned furiously in that area and it wouldn't even have been possible to swim or launch a lifeboat. The mystery as to what exactly happened the night of the sinking forms the narrative of Tom's new novel and not only shines a light on the events in question but also on the realities of life at the time on one of Ireland's most remote offshore islands. So the wasp, by the way, is still underwater and scuba divers go to look at it. The, the wreck, though, was possibly, one of the explanations has been offered for the wreck is that it's possible that at the time of the wreck, which was 4 o'clock a.m. in the dawn's early light, the light on the Torrey Island lighthouse may not have been lit. And the whole series of events leading up to that that made that circumstance possible is part of my story because it's a convergence of improbabilities. If things had gone differently on the ship, if they'd gone differently in the lighthouse, if they'd gone differently with the ownership of the island and the rumors that floated around, things could have been different. But everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong, and it ended up with the destruction of the ship. And that was Mark McMenamin reporting there on the sinking of the HMS Wasp at Tory Island off the northwest coast of Donegal. In that report, we heard from writer Tom Sigafoos. Tom's book, The Cursing Stone, is available online through his own website, tomsigafoos.com. Copies can also be ordered for delivery nationwide via Novel Idea Bookshop in Ballyshannon in County Donegal. After the break, I'll be joined by Hilary Dully to talk about the revolutionary period memoir of Irish Republican Maura Comerford. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. This year it marks the 40th anniversary of the death of Maura Comerford, who could be described as the Jeanne d'Arc of the Republican cause, the Irish Republican cause, that is. A committed Republican until her death, Maura's dedication to the cause of Irish freedom knew no bounds. Cycling across Ireland on her trusty bike during the War of Independence, she never shirked her duties. I had a pierce from Wexford, and it was a new one, and it went very well. I rode a lot of Galway, and um, I rode the whole south, I suppose, from Kerry to Dublin, along by Wexford, and um, a lot of Tipperary. As you can hear, she certainly got around. Like many of her comrades in Common Amon, she opposed the Anglo-Irish Treaty and took the anti-treaty side during the Civil War. She saw action in the forecourts and the Hammam Hotel. She even managed to be caught on film, coolly cycling down Sackville Street in the midst of battle. Uh, but just who was this unmanageable revolutionary to uh, plagiarise the title of Margaret Ward's famous work? To discuss the life of Maura Comerford, I'm joined 
by Hilary Dolly, editor of the recently published book On Dangerous Ground, a memoir of the Irish Revolution by Maura Comerford. And that's from Lilliput Press. You're very welcome indeed to the, the History Show, Hilary. Thank um, you, Miles. She's she's one of the few women to write a memoir, really, of, of her activities during the Irish Revolution, written during the 40s and uh, 50s, but uh, only published in the last year. Did she try and get it published during her lifetime? And why, on, on the face of it, how come it was never published? Well, Maura did try very hard to get it published during her lifetime. And um, on a couple of occasions, she actually came close to it. And I suppose I, I discovered it in the mid-1980s when I met my husband, who was Maura's nephew, and um, he was in possession of a very extensive archive, which charts her whole revolutionary and republican activities right up to her death in 1982. So when I first began to read the memoir, I was kind of struck by a few things, really. First, uh, the very extensive and detailed role that Maura played during the revolutionary period, which I was quite surprised by. And also, of course, in relation to the number of other women who she mentions during her memoir. But I suppose the thing I was most struck by was how evocative the memoir was of the time. And, you know, the quality of her writing brought you right back into the period and you almost felt like you were there. And also, um, even though she was very immersed in in the period, she wanted also, I think, to analyse what had happened, how it had, from her perspective, gone so wrong. So she was a great writer, I think. That was her profession. She later became a journalist. And she also spoke to a lot of people during the period of writing her memoir. And she says this herself. She wanted to talk to old comrades and old enemies. But I think the most striking thing for me was I just felt when I read the memoir that I was there during the period. And it's that evocative nature of her writing which I think makes it very strong. Now, the book is not just the memoir because you used other material from this extensive archive that you that you that you talk about was it difficult to put a shape on it was it difficult to put an order on it or was the, the was the core of it already there i mean you say she was a good writer so presumably that's the case it was there yeah i i think um, what what happened really is that it was all there but there was an awful lot of it um she did actually put a, a version of the memoir into the ucd archives in the 1970s but when i began to thrall through the archive i began to find more and more material revised chapters chapters she discarded and so on and so i suppose my first job was to try and get all that material together and uh, so I desperately began looking for a software package that might just translate the typed pages to some kind of Word document. So when I failed in doing that, I just typed everything in. So my guide was the template from the UCD archive. And then I suppose what I wanted to do after that was create a chronological narrative because more tended to write thematically quite a lot rather than in chronological order. And I knew that she wanted not only to tell her story, but to tell the wider story of the period as well. So I saw that as my job, really, to try and do that. And so I began to look at the idea of having footnotes to explain 
just some of the fascinating characters, the people, the memoir, and that she might have given a lot of background information about. And to try and create her story, the story of all the women who um, were, I suppose, so cruelly written out of history. And then also to just give a sense of what it was like to be there at the time. Mm. The footnotes are definitely, they're extremely useful because they do explain who who this person is, who that person is. Um, 1916, where was she in 1916? What was she up to? Yeah, well, this was like, um, Maura, of course, had a knack of being in the right place at the right time. And she happened to be in Dublin during 1916 as a young woman um, visiting a very elderly and sick relative. So she just found herself um, in the middle of the 1916 Rising. And um, I think it's a really lovely, evocative chapter in the memoir because she is this a young woman walking the streets of Dublin, all the rumours, all the people moving about, and that sense of just being um, part of something. And yet not she, she wasn't actually actively involved in 1916. But she did go and try to get into Stephen's Green. Um, but then, of course, she realised she had to go back to her elderly relative. Um, and so that was, as she would say, you know, she was totally politicised after her experiences and I suppose what's happened subsequently mm. as well. Well, let's hear that voice again and let's hear about that politicisation very shortly after 1916 because in this clip she talks about some of her early activities in Common Amon during the anti-conscription campaign of April 1918. Conscription must have been coming up. I was in the early organisation of Common Amon by Miss Bloxham. She was a member of the executive. But... Uh, also very active in Sinn Féin and active in the anti-conscription organisation. In fact, we, we were busy night and day on between one thing and another. There was no stop in the activities. People were putting flags up on trees and flags on houses and you watched the, uh, the British police, the RIC. It was their job to take down these flags and Anyone who was my age at that time loved putting them up for the sake of the taking down part two. Right, amongst the many tasks that Maura undertook was work for something called the White Cross. What was the White Cross? Well, the White Cross was um, set up to offer relief to people who were suffering during the War of Independence. And they couldn't uh, apply to the Red Cross. So this was set up and was funded from various different sources, including America. And Mora was sent by the White Cross around the country to um, document atrocities. And so she travelled all over the country and mainly in the beginning really to do with um, the black and tan atrocities, but also murders and, well, anything really that the White Cross felt they needed to know in order to offer relief to people. So she would um, she would have to liaise with the clergy, um, mostly Catholic priests, because that's how the money had to be dispersed, according to the White Cross rules. And she would find people in need of help, and then she would prepare reports and then those people would be offered assistance. So she was everywhere during that period. OK, we hear her now talking about that work and the impact that it had on her. When the White Cross came, I was uh, employed as a kind of messenger or sometimes I was one of a commission 
investigating the, what the black and tans had done in the way of uh, burning houses and making first reports, preliminary reports of damage. People in Dublin didn't realize what it was like to be uh, alone in a country house which was remote. And that was where the black and tans went. They didn't burn houses in Dublin or in centers of population. But they went where people were lonely and where, you know, and they pulled them out and they burnt their houses in the night, that kind of thing. And I, I was tremendously privileged to be able to meet some of those people. Now, the majority of Common Naman opposed the Anglo-Irish Treaty, Maura included, but unlike many of her contemporaries' writings, she actually writes a lot about her activities in the Irish Civil War, which makes her memoir even more important. Um, certainly, as we're now reaching the centenary of that event, describe to me how she got involved in the, in the Civil War, particularly in the, in the early weeks, the early days in Dublin. Yeah, well, I think uh, Maura was very clear from the beginning that she and a, a lot of her common Amelan comrades were, were not going to support the treaty. So I suppose she began to get involved with the anti-treaty side from the very beginning. Um, she was in the Four Courts um, and she was with the Four Courts garrison and then following the surrender, then she went on to work for the Dublin Resistance and um, I think that, again, is a just just a very interesting part of the memoir because um, I think in some ways because it's written by a woman, it, it humanises it to a greater extent. So, you know, she is talking about, you know, what happened militarily, but she also presents kind of pen portraits of people like Cochelbrua and Lee Mellows. And um, she writes, again, you know, I mean, I know I'm using this word evocative quite a lot, but she she does paint a picture of that absolute sense of betrayal, um, the sense that it was kind of win or die and um, that was non-negotiable for many of these women and, of course, for, for many men as well. And that was something that she held for the rest of her life. So... She remained a very staunch supporter of the Republican cause. Well, let's rewind to the point where Common Amman hold the convention. They were first to hold a convention and vote on whether they would accept or reject the treaty. And we're going to hear Maura explain why the majority of Common Amman, as far as she was concerned, rejected it. Well, we were all for the Republic. The politicians at that debate I was talking about uh, de Valera said that he had been trying to prepare the Dal for a compromise. Uh, the leadership apparently recognised that they, they would do something which was a compromise. But we who were in the Republican forces, particularly in the volunteers or Kumanaman, we had been kept going by the assurance all the time that we were defending an established government it it was democratically elected, it was established, and it would never be given away. It it was the rock, we were standing on this rock and we were defending that. It was a dreadful blow. And our comrades had died for that. And also, I suppose, I felt particularly involved because the people I had been meeting when I was going around the country, the people who had really suffered, the poor and the unemployed, we had asked them to make sacrifices. Uh, which were just being thrown overboard by these politicians who thought some settlement would do all right. 
So, obviously, because of her anti-treaty stance, it would have meant that she would have fallen out with people that she had been associated with in Common Amon and elsewhere, females, women like herself, uh, for many, many years. And I'm thinking particularly of somebody like Min Ryan, who was married to Richard Mulcahy. Yeah, I mean, I think the the narrative has always been brother against brother, but I think that uh, certainly applies sister <laughs> against sister. And as many people know, I mean, after the, that Common Among Convention, um, there was another group set up, which was called Common Assertia, and they were supporters of um, the Free State. And um, they they didn't work in parallel. They did work against each other. And I suppose the incident with Min Ryan really would be, um, Maura describes in her memoir, um, she was involved, um, well, she, she she always writes very modestly, but she just mentions that she was involved in a plot to kidnap Cosgrave. And she was driving uh, a car. They had been given a car to uh, check out a safe house for this plot, which was supposed to happen, I suppose, in the next few weeks. And the car broke down, which happened very frequently, actually. She's a lot of car breaking down incidents. Um, And they hailed a taxi. And unfortunately, Min Ryan happened to be in the taxi and recognised Maura. And as Maura said, she pretended not to recognise her, but she did. And so the next post she came to, she informed on where Maura was. And meanwhile, she had gone off to try and get another car. But when she came back, she was arrested. And um, I suppose that's kind of the the tragedy, again, of the Civil War, which um, is going to be very difficult to negotiate for us all in the next while, is that sense of betrayal. But then, on the other hand, she would talk about um, maintaining a friendship with Mabel Fitzgerald, you know, even though they would have been, I suppose, to some degree, I I think Mabel was probably always a bit not quite sure uh, which side to go with, but, I, I mean, had to because of her husband. So, but she would talk about maintaining a friendship and meeting for cups of coffee. So it wasn't, I don't think it was all the women who stayed with Common Amon and all the women who went with Common Assertia that they were all bitter enemies. But I do think that there was a lot of bad feeling, much the same as there was between the men. Mm. She went on a mission of some kind to the to the USA. Tell us what that trip was about. Yeah, she was, she was imprisoned in at that time from that um, incident where Min Ryan informed on her. And um, she, when she came out of prison, De Valera um, sent her on a, a mission to the uh, United States and she travelled. There were other women there as well, quite a number of other women, um, and she mentions that, um, Hannah Shee, Skeffington, Margaret Pierce. So there was a lot of people who went to the US at the time to to try and raise money and to try and keep the Republican cause alive in the in the USA. So she did a lot of speaking engagements. You know, she spoke uh, at various different events. She was there for nine months. Um, but as she describes it, she, she was homesick for every minute of it because she was, you know, a lot of her comrades were back in Ireland on hunger strike. And so she was very anxious about what was happening back home. And when she did come back, her American friends had insisted upon putting some guns into her case. But um, that's a kind of sad moment as well, because when she gets back, she realises that, you know, that's the last thing the Republicans wanted to see at that time, because, you know, it had 
disintegrated. The war was effectively over the Civil War when she returned. Now, when the Civil War ended, she didn't just go into hibernation. She was imprisoned for nine months in Mountjoy at the end of 1926. What did she do to merit a jail sentence on that occasion? Yeah, again, you know, more is modesty. Uh, you know, you, you wouldn't really know how much she did from what she writes, but um, she was involved, um, and indeed she is credited with being the instigator of a campaign which was run by a number of women in Common Amon to, um, I suppose, effectively intimidate juries in Republican trials. So where Republicans were on trial... They would locate the jury members and ask them, I suppose, to do what she would consider to be their patriotic duty, to acquit them, basically. And um, it was a very concerted campaign that went on for a number of years. Um, And I think it probably uh, merits a lot more research, that particular period of time and the women who were involved. Um, So... You know, uh, Sheila Humphreys was very prominent in it and Helena Maloney and the three of them were arrested um, having, there was 20,000, I think, pamphlets which were called ghosts um, or signed by ghosts and these were, um, you know, just in relation to this jury intimidation, um, that what, what they were doing in relation to that. And 20,000 seems like an extraordinary number. They posted them up and they were found with these and they were taken to court um, where they behaved very badly, did their knitting, um, talked in Irish and just were generally utterly defiant. Um, and so they were imprisoned. After the Civil War also, she really falls on hard times, doesn't she? Oh, she does, yeah. I Like an awful lot of other people, she she really had no resources when she came out of the Civil War. Um, and so she had no job, she had no home. And she got the land of a cottage um, from her friend, Father Sweetman, in Gorey in County Wexford. And she ran a poultry farm, a very small poultry farm, eked out a living for 10, 11 years and was only really rescued, I suppose, to some degree from that life of really hardship and poverty by securing a job in the Irish press in 1935. So in other words, she's basically rescued by Eamon de Valera's publication. She is rescued by Eamon de Valera's publication. Um, but um, I don't think she was his biggest fan. But I think... I like to think anyway um, that they they were they were very close comrades at one time. She was his driver and um, she escorted him over mountains. They walked over mountains together for days. And I suppose he didn't forget that. And, um, and that's, you know, sort of the complications of all these relationships. I think he maintained a fondness for her and heard, I suppose, of her very poor circumstances and may well have played some role in getting her that job in the Irish press. Well, it's a fascinating, she's a fascinating woman and it's a a wonderful memoir, beautifully written, brilliantly edited. And uh, for those of you who want to know more about Maura Comerford and the role of women indeed in the Irish Revolution, because that, as Hilary was saying, is very much part of what uh, Maura Comerford was writing about. The books to read are Unmanageable Revolutionaries by Dr. Margaret Ward, uh, but this particular book on Dangerous Ground, a memoir of the Irish Revolution by Maura Comerford, edited by Hilary Dolly, published by Lilliput Press. Uh, Hilary, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The History Show. Thank you, Miles. Thank you. Fill up once more, we'll drink a toast. 
to comrades far away. No nation upon earth can boast of braver hearts than they. And though they sleep in dungeons deep, or flee out loud and banned, we love them yet, we can't forget the felons of our land. And though they sleep in dungeons deep, or flee out loud and banned, we love them yet, we can't forget the felons of our land. That's all we have time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark McGrath on sound and our researcher, Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>